0: Tonight, um, I'm going to take you to a passage that has stirred my heart for some time. Um, It was about a year and a half, maybe a couple years ago. The first time I heard this passage, the first time I heard these words from our Lord, and and I was stunned. I I didn't think Jesus said these words. I I didn't think he said such hard things. Uh, But as we have found out thus far in this series, he he just continues to surprise us. One hard saying after another. And, and my, my hope for tonight, guys, as we look at this passage that has stirred my heart for some years now, is that when it's all said and done, your heart will be stirred as well. Um, and so I want to go to Luke 13. Luke 13. It's where we're going to spend most of our time for tonight. Your subtitles should say, Repent or Perish. And really, we can go home after that, right? That's a hard (laughs) saying. Repent or perish. Uh, Let's start in verse 1. We're going to read to verse 5. There were some present at the very time who told him, that is, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Verse 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I've titled the message for tonight, A Theology of Catastrophe. A Theology of Catastrophe, you can see that at the top of your handouts if you're following. And the reason for that title is because here in our passage for tonight, we get a glimpse, ladies and gentlemen, as to how God reacts, listen to me, how God reacts to tragic events that happen to occur. Here in our passage for tonight, we're given insight by our Lord himself as how God responds to devastating events how God responds to, here it is, catastrophes, and thus a theology of catastrophe. Uh, here in Luke 13, there are some individuals who give a report, this devastating report. They bring to Jesus as he's preaching to the multitudes. Uh, it was an event that had taken place right in their midst. It was a murder. It was a slaughter. And Jesus' response to their bringing This report to him is is nothing shy of shocking. It's not the typical response that you and I would expect for someone who has just been been given the news that he was given. Again, a tragic event, a catastrophe is brought to Jesus. How does he respond? Look at verse 2 again. And he answered, Luke tells us, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. An unusual response, is it not? Again, in verse 5, verse 4, he tells another of another catastrophic event. And then verse 5, no, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Have you ever wondered as a Christian how you ought to react and maybe how you ought to respond to tragic events that transpire right in our midst, right in our day and age? Events like the Boston bombings of 2013. Events like the Hurricane Katrina of 05. Events that result in lives literally being laid waste. What's the Christian response? What's the believer's response? How should a Christian respond and react in the wake of, of a catastrophic events, in the wake of devastating events, events like the terrorist attacks of 2011, the Twin Towers, the Pentagon, or maybe events of the past that we often discuss, events like the Holocaust in Europe in the mid-20th century. In 1994, the Rwanda genocide that took place in the middle of Africa, 800,000 lives, Slaughtered. Slaughtered. How does the Christian think about these horrific events? I think our Lord's words here in Luke 13 give us a guideline, guys. We as believers, when we see such events transpire, uh, we weep, of course, when lives are lost. Whether it be a result of wicked men or whether it be a result of a natural disaster because we, right, More than any other people group value life, do we not? So, of course, we weep. And we as Christians, of course, respond to catastrophic events by weeping and our hearts break at the sight of death because we, more than any other people group, understand how tragic death really is. Do we not? We do. But in light of Jesus' words here in Luke 13, I'm not convinced that that's it, ladies and gentlemen. That's not it. I'm not convinced based on our Lord's words here in Luke 13 and based on other truths echoed elsewhere in the Bible that we as Christians simply are to weep when lives are lost. We as Christians are not simply to mourn when catastrophes occur in our day and age. We aren't simply to mourn at the hearing of, of those horrific events that I just mentioned to you a moment ago. That would greatly, listen to me, that would greatly undermine the truths that we know to be true. That would greatly undermine the hope that we know to be so great in the life to come. That would greatly undermine the fact that we know life here on earth is so short. We aren't simply to weep. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my hope that our text for tonight will be a great challenge to the way you choose to respond to tragic events that occur right before your eyes. Events like the Holocaust. Events like the the bombings that just happened in Boston, 2013. Catastrophic events. Events that result in precious lives being lost. It's my hope that Jesus' words here give us a guideline of how we ought to respond Two catastrophes, a theology of catastrophe. Buckle up. This is a hard saying. It really is. It's an unusual response. What I want to do, guys, is I want to work through these five verses here in Luke Luke chapter 13. I want to make them clear to you, and then I want to spend most of our time talking about the implications of it all. And so to understand what's going on here, there's basically three points, three things that we need to kind of talk about. One, is the catastrophe reported by the people. Jesus is preaching. People bring this report to him of this catastrophic event that had occurred. We see that in verse one. In verse two, based on Jesus' response, we see how the people perceived the catastrophe that was brought to him. And then in verses three through five, the catastrophe response by our Lord. And the response is where I wanna spend majority of our time, but we gotta work through the, the other points as well. And so first, the catastrophe reported by the people in verse one. Look at the text with me. If you have a Bible, I really want you to, to focus on the text. So look at it. There were some present at the very time who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans who blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Luke first tells us at the beginning of verse one, if you look at it again, that there were some present at the very time who told Jesus about this tragic event that had occurred. What very time could Luke be referring to here in verse 1? What very time was it when these individuals mentioned this event to Jesus as he's, he's preaching? Well, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he had set his face to go down to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 tells us that. He was going down to Jerusalem to complete the work that the Father had given him. That is to die on the cross. At this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has left his northern Palestinian ministry up in Galilee, right? He spent two and a half years there. He, he, he ventured all the way down. He journeyed all the way down to Jerusalem to die on the cross. But, but in between the time he set his face to go down to Jerusalem to complete the work that God had given him or commissioned him to do, and, be, and between the time he was lifted up on the cross, uh, there were a lot of things that had taken place. And one of those things was his final preaching efforts. Jesus preached to the end. Here in in chapter 13 of Luke's gospel, Jesus is preaching to tons of people, tons of people. Actually, if you go back to Luke chapter 12, Luke tells us that there were so many people there, listen to this, they were trampling over one another. Kind of sounds like Black Friday, doesn't it? They were trampling over each other, multitudes, multitudes. And so, again, in the midst of these large crowds, Jesus does what he always does. He preaches, right? And so the very time, again, that Luke is referring to here in the beginning of verse 1 is the time when Jesus was preaching to the large crowds. And it happened to be that as Jesus was preaching to the multitudes on this occasion here in Luke's gospel, he was interrupted by some people in the audience, which wasn't the first time. He kept being interrupted for some odd reason. I'm sure he was used to it, right? He always got interrupted as he was preaching. And these individuals interrupt him to, to give him this report, this report that had taken place right in their midst. I want you to read verse one with me again. It says, there were some present at the very time that Jesus was preaching to the multitudes who told him about the Galileans, here it is, the event, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice, This was a tragic, tragic event. The news of these Galileans being killed was far-reaching, as you can imagine. This news of this event would have undoubtedly made into the Jerusalem Chronicle. It would have easily made it into the Jerusalem Gazette. This story probably was in every headline of every paper all throughout the Judea region. This was a big deal. There happened to be a group of Galileans. Here's the story. Who journeyed down to Jerusalem for the sake of, of the Passover to sacrifice, right? And and upon these individuals entering into the temple to partake in sacrificing of their animals, there was a group of Roman soldiers who entered in right behind them and killed them. They killed them. The language that Luke uses here in verse 1 is, is so vivid, in my opinion. Look at it again. He says, the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled or mixed with the blood of their sacrificed animals. Vivid language. If you can picture this, these Galileans enter into a temple, they grab their animals, they slit the throats of their sacrifice with whatever instrument they would have used, and shortly after their animals' blood is spilt, listen to this, their very own blood is spilled. All over the temple. This was a brutal act of murder. This was a sly attack. This was a devilish attack. It was, listen, it was a slaughter in the temple. And the news of its happenings, far-reaching, far-reaching. You can't help but to ask why. Why such brutality? Why such evil? Why such disregard for human life on Pilate's part? What sparked such an event to, to occur and Scripture is silent in answering that question for us. Actually, here in Luke 13 is the only mentioning of this event all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Bible. And so there have only been educated guesses as to why this event occurred. But I believe these educated guesses are they are compelling um, as I studied this text. Historians say that this group of Galileans mentioned here in verse 1 were murdered because they were in strong opposition to the Roman government. They were an obstinate group. Josephus, many of you are familiar with that name. The famous Jewish historian writing about the Galilean people tells us this, that these individuals, the Galileans, were always ready, listen to this, to disturb the Roman authority. Obstinate people. These Galileans uh, believed that paying tribute to the Roman rule, that paying respect to the Roman rule, giving honor to the Roman government, they said this, that is treason against God. These were political zealots, if you will. And so Pilate, a Roman governor, upon hearing of this obstinate and rebellious group making their way down to Jerusalem for the Passover, he thought it would be fitting to send a message to the Jewish people as a whole. He he wanted to communicate to the Jews that choosing to oppose the Roman occupation would result in the worst types of punishment. Such opposition would not go unpunished. And the message was sent. His message was sent. The news of this event was far-reaching. Pilate's wicked act of brutality, as these individuals were trying to worship, it had reached the ears of everyone in Jerusalem. Everyone. So much so that as Jesus is preaching, and he's preaching about repentance, there's some individual in the crowd who interrupts him to tell him of this event. And so moving on to point two, I want to look at the catastrophe perceived by the people. Verse one, this report is brought to him, this tragic report, this slaughter in the temple, he's interrupted as he's preaching to the multitudes, but how did, all, how did the people perceive it of Jesus' day? How did they look at it? How, how were they processing it all, the individuals who brought this report to him? Verse two, we're given the answer, and he answered, Luke says, speaking of Jesus, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Here in Jesus' response in verse two, with, with this question, we can see how these individuals who brought it up to him were processing it all. This was the common perception amongst the Jews. The Jews of Jesus' day have been taught and they have come to believe that the reason why such individuals, such individuals like the Galileans, suffered such fates is because they were the worst types of people. When such an event like this one mentioned here happened in Jesus' day, the way most of the Jews process it all is by telling themselves that the victim of the catastrophe were the worst type of sinners. They were the the greatest sinners amongst the people. They were the preeminent sinners, if you will. Or else why would they have suffered such a fate? This is what the Galileans, this is what the, sorry, the Jews would tell themselves in that day. Look at what Jesus says again in verse 2. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And the answer was yes. Jesus' audience believed that the Galileans were slaughtered in the temple because they were terrible people. This was their theology. And what's interesting about their theology to me is it's quite different from people's theology of our day and age, is it not? In our day and age when disasters occur, when lives are lost, whether it be a result of of a man's wickedness or whether it be a result of a natural disaster, what's the response, guys? Why do bad things happen, what? To good people. How can an almighty God, maybe you've been told this, how can your almighty God How can your all-loving God, all-powerful God, allow for such an event like 9-11 to happen? How can he allow uh, uh, so-and-so, Stacy, Tracy, I'm rhyming now, (laughs) Zach, whoever it is, (laughs) to suffer such a fate? Is this not the modern-day theology? And in contrast to that thinking, to today's thinking, the first century drew, processed things completely different. When people in Jesus' day fell victim to natural disasters, when people in Jesus' day fell victim to acts of wicked men, most of the Jews would respond and say this, that person or that victim of that catastrophe, they must have been wicked. They were wicked individuals. They were very, very bad people. Here's what the the people of Jesus, they were saying. The Galileans who were slaughtered in the temple, they were the worst types of people. Let me prove this to you further. Go to John chapter 9. Flip over to the right. John chapter 9. This is a familiar passage to most of you. Jesus healing the man born blind. Again, their theology, bad things happened to the worst types of people. John 9 substantiates that point. In verse 1, as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples, who were Jewish, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born Blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed. Take notice of verse 2. What did the disciples ask upon seeing this man born blind? Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? The disciples' question here gives us great insight into what they believed about people who possessed disabilities. As a result of their theology, guys, listen to this which was commonplace, right, in that day, they were convinced that the reason people fell victim to acquiring disabilities, the reason that this man here in John 9 was blind, here it is, was because there was some great sin in his life. And if there wasn't some great sin in his life, then they went on to the next line. They they said there must be some great sin in his parents' life. Again, guys, this was their thinking. They they thought this. They said God punishes those who are wicked. God judges those who are the worst types of sinners. And listen to this: to some degree, they were right, were they not? I don't want to suggest that that faulty notion that certain people suffered certain fate because they were the worst type of sinners was one hundred percent faulty. In the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Deuteronomy, God did indeed promise to bless those who were what? Obedient. And to curse those who were what? Disobedient. But though those things were in their Bibles, which was the Old Testament, these people, the Jews of Jesus' day, the disciples, failed to understand the extent of the curse. That all are sinners and that all have been cursed due to the fall. And and on top of that, the Jews of Jesus' day, his disciples, they failed to understand the sovereignty of God, right? Jesus said here in John 9, it wasn't that anybody sinned, but so what? Why was this man created blind? So that the works of God may be displayed, the sovereignty of God. The people in Jesus' day just didn't get that. They didn't understand that. And this is probably why when you read the book of Job, his friends give the type of counsel they give. You guys are familiar with Job's story, right? Crazy trials, lost his family, lost his health, lost his his land, his livestock. He lost everything, right? And his friends, they try to make sense of it all, right? They try to make sense of it. Unfortunately, they had the same type of theology that the individuals back in Luke 13 had. They thought that the worst types of people suffered the worst types of faith. And they try to use that theology to counsel Job. Listen to this passage. In Job chapter 4, one of his friends, Eliphaz, said this. I wouldn't even listen to the guy just because his name Eliphaz. I'm not listening to you, man. Um, <laughs> one of his friends said to, said to him this, who that was innocent ever perished? Did you catch that? Who that was innocent, Job, ever perish and he continues or where were the upright cut off as I have seen Job those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same by the breath of God they perish and by the blast of his anger they are consumed in other words Job you are perishing because you are not innocent Job you are perishing because you are plowing iniquity because you have been sowing trouble secretly and God is punishing you. He's paying you back, Job. This was how the Jews thought in Jesus' day. This was how the individuals thought back in Luke chapter 13. So go back there now. You're in John 9. Flip back to Luke 13. The report was brought to Jesus. A slaughter in the temple, right? Right? A slaughter in the temple. How did they perceive it? Well, those Galileans who suffered such a fate, they were the worst types of people. They were the worst types of people. You heard how Eliphaz counseled Job. Whoever was innocent perished. This was the way the Jews thought. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the others because they suffered such a fate? Jesus asked, and the answer was yes. But coming off of that, I want to move to our final point. Jesus responds to the catastrophe in verses 3 through 5. So read it with me. Do you think, I'm going to get a running start in verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? The answer in their mind was yes. But Jesus says what? Verse 3, no, I tell you. No, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or, or those 18 On whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In Jesus' response here, guys, he basically does two things. He basically does two things. He dispels the idea that the Galileans who were slaughtered in the temple suffered such a fate because they were worse types of people right? He wants to do away with that, with that faulty thinking, that faulty theology. Look at verse three again, the beginning of verse three. He says, no, I tell you. No, I tell you. And he even goes the extra mile to make that clear. I, I want to make this clear to you, that people don't suffer such fates because they are the worst type of people. And so what I'm going to do for you now, I'm going to give you another event of another catastrophic event that has happened in your day and age. Verse four, look at it. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell, crushed the life out of them and killed them? Same question. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Same answer, beginning of verse five. No, I tell you. No. Jesus first dispels their faulty theology, their errant theology. He says no, but he doesn't just stop there in his response. He doesn't just do away with that, with that wrong theology. Secondly, what he does he calls the people to repent. Look at verse 3 again. Do you think that they were worse? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Look down at verse 5 again. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus calls for repentance from his audience. He, he implores the people to turn from their sin or listen to this or else else guys is this not an unusual response in the light in light of what jesus or the story that was brought to jesus again let me refresh your minds he's interrupted as he's preaching he's told of this catastrophic event slaughtered brutally murdered you wouldn't think his response would be this Repent or else. Repent. And he doesn't just stop there, right? He doesn't just say it once in verse 3. He gives another story of another catastrophic event and he says, he dispels the faulty theology and he says, again, repent. Repent or else. You would think he would take a moment of silence, right? To remorse over those who lost their lives. You, you would think that he would take a moment of silence to remember those who, who lies were laid waste in the temple, who were literally crushed in Salome, wouldn't he take a moment of silence for them? Rather, he says, repent or else, repent or else. Guys, what do we learn from this response in regards to how God reacts to catastrophes? And guys, and, and in light of that, how do we as Christians respond in the wake of tragic events? That occur right before our eyes. Do we weep? Going back to the beginning of the message. The obvious answer is yes. Of course we weep. Because again we hold the highest view of human life. Do we not? And we more than any other people group. We weep. I weep at the sight of death. Because I understand that men and women. They're stepping into eternity. With a broken relationship with God. Of course I weep at death. Of course you weep at death. But does it stop there? No. It doesn't stop there. We see that clearly in Jesus' response in verse 3 and again in verse 5. We don't just weep, guys. We go further than that. And so now what I want to do for the remainder of our time, and and really if if you kind of fall into sleep, (laughs) please wake up. Don't miss these implications that we're going to go over. And if it helps for you to stay locked in, pick up your piece of paper. I I did the blank thing so you can fill it out and kind of stay with me, okay? I want to talk about the implications of this passage. And the first implication that I want to hit at, the first implication that I couldn't help but to see all over this passage, all over this response from Jesus is this. God is sovereign over death. God is sovereign over death. Can I get an amen? Amen, Amen, right? This implication is clear in light of Jesus doing away with the faulty notion that the worst types of people suffer the worst types of faith. Again, he says, no, I tell you, to that theology, beginning of verse 3 and verse 5. And he was trying to communicate to the people that your theology is wrong. People don't necessarily die because they are worse than other people. And on the flip side, listen to this, guys. Good people, or am I saying that right? Good people don't necessarily live because they are better than other people. There are really wicked people who live, and there are really moral people who die. I'll say that again. There are really wicked people who live, and there are really moral people who die. And listen to this. God is sovereign over them all. God's sovereign over them all. Turn with me to Psalm 115. I want to advance this argument in your hearts. God is sovereign over death. Guys, I love the sovereignty of God, don't you? I love it. Man, it's so great. I get so excited about the sovereignty of God. I really do. Psalm 115, this is my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses in all Scripture. Verse 2 of Psalm 15, this, this arrogant question from the nations. Why should the nations say, where is their God? What? Are you serious? Are you serious? People are doing the same thing today. Where's your God, Deontay? Where's your God, Luke? Where's your God, John? You know what you respond to them? Look at verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. And what? He does what he pleases. He does what he pleases. This has sovereignty all over it. The, The sovereign Lord of the universe, the psalmist says, everything that happens is because he wants it to happen. This is a humbling verse, ladies and gentlemen, is it not? God does what he wants because he's God, and he does what he pleases. Flip over to Psalm 135. God's sovereign over death. Psalm 135. I'm going to start in verse 5. The psalmist writes, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all other gods. 1 Corinthians 8 tells us that idols don't really exist. There are no other gods. Verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, here it is, he does. And then he elaborates on it, the author. He says, in heaven and on earth, in the seas, in all the deeps, he does what he pleases, guys. And would this not include death? Listen to Job 14. Since his days, that is man's days, I want you to listen, are determined. Our days are determined. Did you know that? and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. That he can't. Job says, listen, Deontay, you can't pass over one day. God says you can't pass over one day because I determined when you were gonna die. Let's, does Jesus not say the same thing in Matthew 6? You guys are familiar with it, right? Anxiousness. He says this. Listen, listen to this question. And which one of you? People, creatures, which one of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? What's the answer? No one. No one. Our days on earth have been numbered. Our days on earth have been numbered. People will die when the Lord has determined. And people will die how the Lord has determined. When the Lord has determined and how the Lord has determined. Job 14, 2. Again, I'm trying to advance the argument in your hearts. I know that you can do all things, Job says to God, and that no purposes of yours can be thwarted. They can't be stopped. There has never been a human being that has ever thwarted the, the determined time of his or her death. And there will never be such a human. God knew back in Luke 13, right? That those Galileans were going to die when they did and how they did. God knew that. And there was no way for them to escape that. You hear me? There was no way for the Galileans who were slaughtered in the temple to escape that. Implication number one, God is sovereign over death. Implication number two, all are sinners and thus all will die. Hear me out, guys. All are sinners and thus all will die will die. As Bible-believing Christians, we know that God is sovereign over death. We affirm that. But we also understand the extent of the fall, do we not? Flip back to Genesis 3, just in case you forgot. Genesis 3. And you guys know what happened in this chapter, right? The fall, the serpent, Satan tempts Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, and they fall. And then starting in verse 14, the Lord begins to deal out curses, right, to the serpent. Verse 16, to the woman. Now I want us to pick up in verse 17, to the man. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return, here it is, to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust, what? You shall return. Verse 19, at the end of it, he says, to dust, you shall return. Here it is, guys. Let me simplify it for you. Man, Adam, because you have sinned, you will die. You will die. And this truth is echoed all throughout scripture. Ezekiel 18:4 says, "The soul who sins shall die." The soul who sins shall die. And Paul, most likely quoting from the words of Ezekiel, I mean his words are just the exact same as Ezekiel's in Romans 6:23. For the wages of sin is death. You remember that one in Iwanis. The wages of sin is death. The punishment for sin is death, is what Ezekiel and Paul tell us. Because all have sinned, and all, what? Verse 19, end of it, all will return to the dust. And so the Galileans, back in Luke 13, they died in such a way. Why? One, because God is sovereign over death. He determined that they would die when they died and how they would die. But not only that, they were sinners. And thus, there was going to be a day when the time clock ran out. There was going to be a day when the time clock ran out. They were sinners. And actually, Jesus affirms that. Go back to Luke 13. I want to show you this. Jesus affirms the very fact that these Galileans, or those who were crushed by the tower in Siloam, were sinners. Look at verse 2, and he answered, Do you think that these Galileans were, what does he say, worse sinners? Now, what is he trying to do here? He's trying to dispel the, the, the faulty theology that says certain people, certain, suffer, uh, certain people suffer. There's a tongue twister for you. <laughs> suffer certain fates because they are worse type of sinners. He's trying to do away with that, but even still in verse 2, we see him say, Do you think that they're worse sinners? They're sinners, he says. Look at verse 5, or sorry, look at verse 4. Do you think that they, that is the 18 who who were crushed by the tower, were worse offenders? Again, trying to do away with the faulty notions, right? But again, he calls them offenders. And keeping that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, listen to Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the whole or entered the world through one man, death through sin, so death was passed on to all men, because all have sinned. I'll say that again. So death, Romans five twelve, was passed on to all men. Why, Paul? Because all have sinned. All have sinned. Guys, you got to remember this in the wake of tragedy. We, we must remember this. We, we must remember that God is sovereign over death. We must remember That all will die. You will die. Your family members, your mom and dad, your sisters, your cousins, they will die. Because so also death passed on to all men. Why? Because all have sinned. Implication number one God is sovereign over death. Implication number two all are sinners and thus all will die. And we, we do get that from Luke 13. Implication number three our time of death is unknown. Guys, our time of death is unknown. And we can actually see this in verse 3 and 5 when Jesus says, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. And by telling them this, obviously he was telling them to repent and and believe or perish, but he was telling them that they didn't know when they were going to die. And when they did die, they they better make sure that they step into eternity with the right relationship with God. We don't know when we're going to die, do we? Deuteronomy 29.29 says, what the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed, they belong to us. Guys, you got to remember that. There are things that only belong to God and for him to know. And there are things that we will never know. And one of those things is the time of our death. Implication number three, our time of death is unknown. Implication number four, life is short. Life is short. This too can see, be seen in our Lord's word here. These individuals who had brought these things up to Jesus were soon after warned by him to repent. And obviously one of the reasons for that is because their lives are short. And the scripture's clear on this issue. I'm not really gonna elaborate here. James 4.14 says, what is your life? What is your life? For you are a midst that appears for a little time. And then vanishes. Psalm 144 says, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Again in the the Psalms 102 verse 11. My days, a man says this, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. There's no need to spend too much time there. Our life is short, guys. Implication number five. And I want to spend the most time here A person's most important issue in life is his or her own soul. I can't say that enough. I can't give this enough time. Life itself wouldn't suffice to make this clear. A person's most important issue in life is their own soul. And Matt hit on this last week, right? There are so many people, guys, in our day and age who who are worrying about other people's issues and other people's problems. And they ne- neglect to pay attention to their own pressing issues. They, they fail so many people to pay attention to the most pressing issue that they stand face-to-face with every day. And that is the issue of the state of their soul. I personally believe that it's a tactic of Satan to get a person to not focus on his or her own soul. It's a tactic of Satan's, I believe to get a person to worry about everyone else and everything else, but Satan wouldn't want you to think about your own soul. He wouldn't want you. I told a guy this week, I said, brother, he's not a Christian. I said, can you just give five minutes? Five minutes, I told him, to your soul this week. Five minutes. Stop deep thinking about where you are with the Lord. J.C. Ryle writing on this issue an old theologian, he says this. Listen to this quote. Are you thinking you will pay attention to these things tomorrow? Remember the words of Solomon, he continues. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what, what the day may bring. And then he says this. I will worry about serious things tomorrow, said the unsaved person. Set the unsaved person to the one who warned him of his coming danger. But listen to this. He says but his tomorrow never came. His tomorrow never came. He continues, tomorrow's is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions, if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. And then he says this, oh, give no place to the devil in this matter. Give no place to the devil in this matter. I will worry about serious things tomorrow, says the person who's suffering in hell right now. Guys, we must warn people to stop focusing. Warn your family members to, to stop focusing on all other things and to give attention to their eternal souls. We must warn people to stop focusing on other people's issues and to focus on their souls. They're going to live forever. The question is where? Where? George Whitfield, a passionate 17th century preacher, said this while he is preaching to an an indifferent group. He says, how can I help weeping when you will not weep for yourselves, though your immortal souls are on the verge of destruction? How, How can I weep when you don't weep for yourselves? Another theologian long ago put it this way while preaching to a group of unbelievers. He said, weep over your souls, men and women. Weep over your souls, men and women. He continues, will you not weep? He says, will you not weep? Will you not weep over your souls? And then he says this, if you don't weep, I'm going to weep for you. I'm going to weep for you. Is that not what we want to say to individuals today? Weep over your souls. As the street preachers are are out there and people are, are indifferent towards eternal things, weep over your souls if you don't weep. I'm going to weep for you. I'm going to weep for you. These individuals here in Luke 13, Jesus is preaching repentance, guys, as he's interrupted. He's preaching about entering into eternal heaven, and they interrupt him with this story. And though it was a, a serious story and a tragic story, he's preaching in how they could have eternal life, and they interrupt him about someone else's issue, about someone else's other family members. And Jesus, he doesn't take the bait. He turns it right back to them, and he says, you repent, or you likewise will perish. You repent, which takes us to our last point, guys. If you don't repent, if people don't repent, they will perish. If people do not repent, they will perish. And this, too, is seen clearly in this text. Jesus says it twice in verse 3 and verse 5. And and the whole point of this section, if you look at the previous context, Jesus is talking about repentance. Preceding context, Jesus is talking about repentance. And so the point of this section is clear. Christ is trying to communicate, repent. Repent, he was saying. In the previous section, he was saying, settle your debts. In the former section, he's talking about bearing fruits worthy of repentance. It's all about repentance. Guys, the word for perish in, in verse 3 means here to be destroyed or given over to hell. And, and the word for repent in verse 3 and 5 means to have a change of mind. And so Jesus says, you better change your mind or else you're going to be sent to hell. You better change your mind or else you're going to suffer the misery of eternal hell. And guys, I just want to say this now. You better change your mind or you will suffer the eternal miseries of hell. You think Jesus here was trying to scare people? He wasn't trying to scare them. He was just telling them the truth. When I talk to people about hell, I'm telling them, listen, that's a real place. You can look there, You can sit there and look with an, indifferent face, with an indifferent face, but it's a real place, and real people are there. And if you don't change your lifestyle, you too will be there. Repent or else. Guys, this is an unusual response, is it not? I I hope that if there's any here who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus' message here, the subtitles in your Bible would be clear. Repent or perish. That is my message for the unbeliever tonight. For the believer, guys, we see how Jesus responds to death, right? In John 11, he weeps. He weeps. He weeps at, at the fact that he saw how death was harming his creation. He wept at that. He wept at that. We weep at death, but we don't stop there. We don't stop there. We got to be turning people and saying, listen, yeah, I know this, these events happened. 9-11, people died. But listen, you're going to die too. You know where you're going? The message is you're going to die. Where are you going? Where are you going? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Father, it has helped me to form a, a proper theology of catastrophes and how I ought to respond in the, in the wake of, of devastating events that occur in our day and age. And they do happen, Lord. They do happen because we live in a sin-cursed world. We live in a world where, where all men have sinned and thus all will die. And Lord, would you, will we be reminded of those things, that you are sovereign over death, that you are sovereign over death, that you have determined a man's days and he cannot pass over them, your word says. And Father, in light of those things, in light of the fact that we all will die, Father, would we be pointing people to the one who can save them from the second death, the one who can be saving them from the eternal misery of hell, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray, amen.